guys. Good morning from Northern California. It's Wednesday, December 19. And I'm getting ready to have my coffee and read my book that you hear behind me. I just went into the bedroom to get my book. Good morning, Maggie is Leonard Cohen. I've been listening to him this morning as I meander around the house a bit. But now it's time for coffee and to get started. So I would thought I thought I would start my my reading with a little bit of home studio sound. Coffee time. And uh, this morning we are having Joe's Dark Coffee. It's a blend I get, or a roast I get from my local Trader Joe's. I can grind the beans there at the store. They have a grinder there. And I use a one cup reusable cup thingy with my coffee maker. And I am so ready this morning to get started. So I'm warming up the warming up the coffee maker and looks like it needs a little more water, so let me grab my water which I have back here, actually. <laughs> hey, Maggie Cuckoo. And la, 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 la. La, 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 la. Sing it, Leonard. I miss Leonard. <laughs> Leonard died the day after our election two years ago. I've always thought of Leonard Cohen as somebody that said you can have that he saw the hypocrisy of many things as as you can hear in his songs he's very tuned in he was very tuned in to the hypocrisies of the world so here we are we are ready to start our coffee and then I'm going to begin my next part of Growing Pains. And I'm gonna have a bit of snowflake pastry I bought recently. It's an almond and cocoa filling pastry. Because I'm into that Decadent celebrate a little mood. Maybe I'll heat a little bit of this up. It would be nice to share this with somebody. That isn't going to happen today except for my kitties. And it's gray and gloomy out. Gray and gloomy. No rain. 
speeding that up a tad. <clears throat> so I'm ready now. I'm going to go over and start the next section. Meet you there. bit of pastry mm. coffee looking out my studio window hot coffee Maggie you want to join she's looking out the window so today we start the chapter difference between nude and naked no, I don't think you need any pastry, Maggie. Mm -mm. She doesn't like human food. She just likes to see what I'm doing. <laughs> she just watched the birds fly over the, the roof. Big blackbirds today. Mm. Um. Mm. Good. So I plan on difference between nude and naked. A chapter called Beanie. I have no idea. It must be a name of somebody. And maybe we'll get to evil if it's not too long. I don't want to make these casts too long. And this is Emily Carr's Growing Pains, the autobiography of Emily Carr. Ada was of Puritan stock. I was early Victorian. We were a couple of prim prudes by education. Neither her family nor mine had ever produced an artist or even known one. Tales of artists' life in Paris were not among the type of literature that was read by our people. If they had ever heard of studying art from the nude, I am sure they only connected it with loose life in wicked Paris, not with art loose life uh. <laughs> mm. the modesty of our families was so great it almost amounted to wearing a bathing suit when you took a bath in a dark room <laughs> I'm sorry oh god oh no Good thing I didn't have my coffee in my mouth. <laughs> Their idea of beauty was the clothes that draped you, not the live body underneath. Hmm. So, because of our upbringing, Ada and I supposed our art should be draped. <laughs> Neither of our families nor our, we ourselves dreamed that art schools in new clean countries like Canada and the United States would have any other kind. It was a shock to us to see that close-walled corner, that close-walled corner in the school with the notice, life class, keep out. <laughs> oh, that brings back a memory. We did have a, we, of course we had a life class at my art school, but um, <laughs> I don't think we ever said keep out, but you knew that you weren't supposed to go be going in and out of that door for the privacy of the model. 
And um, I can't remember. I know, I know, I did see some sort of a sign on the door at school, but I don't think it said keep out. It just said life model drawing class or something. Hmm, I can't remember. <laughs> okay, sorry. Hmm. Mrs. Oh, sorry. Okay. Mrs. Piddington nosed curiously and asked me questions. Balked by the keep-out notice on the life class door, satisfied that my ignorance and indifference were not put on, she gave up bothering. One morning, a student of the life class, a woman of mature years <laughs> and of great ability, offered to give me a criticism. Everyone acknowledged that a, that a crit from a life class student was worthwhile. They did not they did know how to draw. The woman gave my work keen attention. You should, you should now go into the life class. Your work is ready, she said. I will never draw from the nude. Oh, then you will never be a true artist. Never acquire the subtlety in your work with only drawing from the nude. Teaches both hand and eye. Tenderness of flowing mind, spiritual quality, life gleaming through living flesh. I sort of agree with that. Why should art show best through live bareness? Aren't statues naked enough? Child, you've got things wrong. Surface vision is not art. Beauty lies deep, deep. It has power to draw, to absorb make you part of itself. It is so lovely it actually makes you ache all the time that it is raising you right up out of yourself to make you part of itself. Her eyes strayed across the room to the Venus, beautiful but cold, standing there on her pedestal. One misses warmth of blood, flutter of breath, and that. <clears throat> A girl model slipped through the outer door and darted behind the curtain that hung behind before the entrance to the life class. Priggishly stubborn, I persisted. I shall go on studying from the cast. Look how the creature scuttles behind the curtain, hiding herself when she turns the doorknob. The woman's voice softened. Poor little shrinking thing ashamed of her lovely body, never trained to have a model's pride. Is there anything to learn in being a model? Could a model be proud of being a model? Oh. Indeed, there is much to learn and professional models are very proud of their job. Most of them are too deeply interested in art. It doesn't, that's not how it's supposed to be said, I don't think. Most of them, too, are deeply interested in art. There's no punctuation. <laughs> As 
San Francisco is too new yet. There are not enough professional artists for nude models to earn a livelihood at posing. The school picks up any unfortunate who, at his wit's end, to make an honest living, takes what he can get. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) Excuse me. Takes what he can get. Modeling. An honest living? Assuredly, that little girl supports her aging parents, hiding from everyone how she does it, burning with shame, in constant agony that someone will find out. A trained model would exult in her profession, be proud of her lovely body, of the poses she has taught it to hold by long hours of patient practice, proud that artists should rejoice in her beauty and reproduce it on their canvas, proud of the delight and tenderness that flow through the artist's hand as he directs the paint or the charcoal, proud that it was her lovely life that provoked his inspiration, made her come alive on the canvas, will keep her there even after her flesh self has gone. Child, excuse me, child, don't let false ideas cramp your art. Statues are beautiful, but they do not throb with life. Her talk showed me the difference between the words nude and naked. So convinced was I of the rightness of nude and the wrongness of naked in art that I said nothing to Ada. Mama was always hovering in Ada's background. Mama's eye was a microscope under which her every action was placed. Had it not been for Mama, I could have made Ada understand. Mama never would. I did not discuss naked and nude with Ada. Beanie. Miss Beaner, the little hunchback, did not feel herself insignificant. She did not come up to any of our shoulders as she stood at her easel. She always picked the biggest images to draw from, preferably Venus. There she stood, her square little chin thrust out, her large feet firmly planted, claw fingers clutching her charcoal, long arms swinging and such pitifully poor results. She stood so close under the great images she drew that that they were violently foreshortened and became twice as difficult to draw. With her pathetic eyes rolled upwards, devouring me and her misshapen body, Beanie looked foreshortened herself as if a heavyweight had crushed her head, as if a heavyweight had crushed her head down into her hips, forcing what was between into a cruel humped ridge. (laughs) Oh, the way she describes things is pretty amazing, isn't it? (laughs) Beanie's art efforts were entirely ineffectual. The, boy, she doesn't mince any words, does it? Does she? <laughs> I'd hate for her to critique my work. <laughs> hmm. Okay, back to the text. The drawing master obviously disliked going near the deformed creature. Noted always for his terse criticism, all Beanie ever got from him was turn over, 
and begin again. (laughs) Beanie turned and turned, her eyes filled with tears. She never got beyond beginnings. As soon as the master left the room, one or another student would go to Beanie and say, he gave everyone a rotten lesson today. That made Beanie feel better. Then the student would find something encouraging to say about the poor lines and smudges on her paper, and Beanie's long, spidery arms would flurry around the helper's neck, her head burrow into their waistline. Beanie hugged with a horrible tightness when grateful. Coming from school one day, I found a kitten trap behind the heavy street door at the foot of the outer stair. It was ravenous for food and for petting. It begged so hard to be hugged that I thought of Beanie. Maybe the kitten would satisfy her hug longing. I took it home that night and offered it to Beanie the next day. She was delighted. As it was a half holiday, I said I would take it to her house that afternoon. Beanie lived in one of the older and shabbier parts of San Francisco. The front door of the house opened right into the parlor, a drab room full of vases filled with artificial flowers. There was two, a stuffed canary under glass and some seashells. The room was a sep- the room was a sepulchre. <laughs> the mantelpiece was draped with stars and stripes. On the stone hearth, fireless because it was summer, sat a plate of fish cleaned and ready to cook. The the kitten made a dart towards the fish. Beanie raised them them to the mantelpiece, remarking as she fanned her hot face with a small brass fire shovel. Our parlor hearth is the coolest place in the house. She was delighted with her kitten and hugged and hugged, first the kitten, then me. Poor Beanie, she had so little and could have done with... Poor Beanie, she had so little and could have done with so much. I felt furious all over again with the drawing master's cruel crits, his not bothering to hide how he loathed her person and despised her work. The Frenchman who taught us painting was different from the drawing master. His crits were severe, but his heart was soft, too soft almost. He championed any poor weak thing. One day, he found the little half-wit Jew boy with his head down on the table of still life stuff crying into the heap of carrots, onions, and beets. What is it, Benny? The master's hand on the boy's head covered it like a hat. Benny lifted a wet, swollen cheek. This morning, I woke into the look glass tell. You, you got to toot ache, Benny. Boys, they say, why you so fat on one side, Benny? I say, do look glass say I got a toothache. Boys make teas of me. A group of grinning students were peeping from behind the screen. Make off there, none of that, roared the professor. After that, he always kept an eye on Benny. That was the spirit of the old art school. It seemed that here there was always a champion for the beanies and the bennies. Evil. I was too busy at the art school to pay much heed to Lyndhurst and Piddington affairs. 
Mrs. Piddington was watching me closely because she was English. She called me my dear, which did not in the least mean that I was dear to her, nor she to me. I kept out of Frank's way. Mrs. Piddington had a good many friends, those people in the Lindhurst Hotel whom she thought worthwhile. Among them was a widow with two daughters about my own age. I had nothing in common with these girls. Mrs. Pennington said, Marie's having a birthday party. She's not asking you because she says she knows no friends of hers who would get on with you. Thank goodness she's not asking me. I hate her stuck-up companions. It is a pity you are not more friendly. You are very much alone. I have lots of friends, thank you, and I have my work. That art school outfit sniffed. Mrs. Pittington <laughs> sniffed. One day, Mrs. Pittington said, How did you get through the square today? I went out just after you and found it impossible because of the dense throng attending that large funeral in the Anglican church. I managed. I found a quiet, lovely little street, so quaint, not one soul in it. The house doors opened so quaintly right onto the pavement. All the windows had close green sh- close green shutters. Nearly every shutter had a lady peeping through. There was a wide there was a red lantern hanging over each door. It was all romantic, like old songs and old books. I wonder if the ladies flutter their little flutter little lace handkerchiefs and throw red roses to gentlemen paying, playing mandolins under their windows at night. Stop it, little donkey shouted Mrs. Pittington. Don't tell me you went through Grant Street. Yes, that was the name. You went into Grant Street? Haven't you seen the headlines in the newspaper for the last week? Grant Street, a scandal in the heart of San Francisco's shopping area. I have no time to read the paper. Why is Grant Street a scandal? It's a red light district. What is a red light district? A place of prostitutes. What are prostitutes? Mrs. Pittington gave an impatient tongue click. If I ever hear of you going into Grant or in any other such place again, home I send you packing. Straight to school, straight home again. Main thoroughfares, no shortcuts, do you hear? Frank came into the room. There was an evil grin on his face. He had heard her snapping tones, saw our red faces. In hot water, eh, kid? I hurried from the room. We had just come up from dinner. Mrs. Piddington was commenting on the family who sat opposite to us at table. The man seems very decent to that child. Why shouldn't he be decent to be his own to his own son? I asked. The child is not his. Was the woman married twice? The child calls him father. No. She was not married twice. The boy is not the man's son. He must be, she noted my frown of puzzle. Frank was out. Sit there, little fool. Your sister has no right to send you out into the world as green as a cabbage. She drew a chair close to mine, facing me. Now, it is time you learned that it takes more than a wedding ring to produce children. Listen. 
Half an hour later, I crept up to my own room at the top of the house, afraid of every shadowed corner, afraid of my own tread smugged into the carpet's soft pile. Horrors hid in corners, terrors were behind doors. I had thought the Lyndhurst provided safety as well as board and lodging. Boarding houses, I had supposed, were temporary homes in which one was all right. No matter if San Francisco was wicked, I thought the great heavy door of the Lyndhurst and my board money could shut it all out. Mrs. Pittington told me that evil lurked everywhere. She said even under the sidewalks in certain districts of San Francisco were dens that had trap doors that dropped girls into terrible places when they were just walking along the street. The girls were never heard of again. They were taken into what was called white slavery, hidden away in those dreadful underground dens, never found, never heard of. Mrs. Piddington spared me nothing. Opium dens in Chinatown, drug addicts, kidnappings, murder, prostitution she poured into my burning, frightened ears, determined to terrify the greenness out of me. I was glad when the carpet of the hallways and stairs came to an end, glad when I heard my own heels tap-tap on the bare top stair treads and landing. I looked around my room fearfully before I closed and locked my door. Then I went to the window. I wanted to see if San Francisco looked any different now that I knew what she was really like. No, she did not. My hand was an old Dick's cage. No, sorry. No, she did not. My hand was on old Dick's cage as I looked over the chimneys and roofs. Old Dick nibbled at my finger. He get, it gave me such a curious feeling of protection and reality. Dick, I don't believe it, not all. It, if it was as wicked as she said, the black would come up from the chimneys and smudge the sky. Wicked ones can shut their doors and windows, but not their chimneys. There is direct communication always between the inside of the houses and the sky. There is no smudge on the sky above the chimneys. San Francisco's sky is clear and high and blue. She even said, Dick, that she was not sure of that dirty old art school of mine. It was in the squalid. It was in a squalid district that, and a, sorry, it was in a squalid district, and that I was never, never to go off the main thoroughfares. I was never to speak to anyone, and I was never to answer if anyone spoke to me. All right, Dick, I'll do that. But all the best, I am going to forget all the rest. I am going to forget. The most close-up ugliness I saw during my stay in San Francisco was right in the Lindhurst, in Mrs. Piddington's own private sitting room. It was Christmas Eve. The Piddingtons had gone to the theater and left me sitting there by their fire, writing letters home. There was a big cake on the table beside me, just come from, just come from home, along with parcels there. Sorry, let me start that again. There was a big cake on the table beside me, just come from home, along with parcels that were not to be opened till Christmas morning. A tap on the door. A friend of Frank Piddington's was there with a great bunch of roses to Christmas, Mrs. Piddington. She's not in, I said. It's no matter, I'll wait. They will be very late, 
That's all right. He pushed past me into the sitting room, steadying himself by laying his hands one on either one on either of my shoulders. He was very unsteady. I thought he was going to fall. Done feels good, he said, and flung himself into the armchair and the roses onto the table. I went to get water for the flowers, and when I came back, he was already heavily asleep. His flushed face had rolled over and was pillowed and was pillowed on my home cake. I, I stood looking in dismay. He must be very ill. He had seemed hardly able to walk at all. He had gone to sleep with a lighted cigar. cigar. Sorry, I don't know why I'm having trouble with this. Okay, I still I stood looking in dismay. He must be very ill. He had seemed hardly able to walk at all. He had gone to sleep with a lighted cigar between his fingers. Its live end was almost touching the upholstery of the chair. I dare not take it from his hand. I dare not go to my room and leave it burning. The evening was early. I sat and watched and watched. The cigar smoldered to its very end. The ash did not fall, but kept its shape. Would the cigar burn him when it reached his skin and wake him? No, just before it reached the end, it went out. Creak, slam, creak, slam, went the heavy door heavy old door of the Lindhurst. Surely it must have swallowed all of it, all its inmates by now. But the Piddingtons did not come. I could not go now because Mrs. Piddington enjoyed fainting at shocks. If she came in after midnight and saw a man asleep in her sitting room, she was sure to faint. Half after midnight, I heard her hand on the doorknob and sprang. Don't be frightened. He's asleep and very ill. Who's asleep? Who's ill? Mrs. Pid- Mr. Piddington's friend. Mrs. Piddington circled the half, s- circled the sleeping man, sniffing. Frank, take that drunk home. Frank burst into guffaws of coarse laughter. Our innocent, entertaining drunks after midnight on Christmas Eve. Ha ha ha! And that is the end of the chapters for this time. Thank you for listening. On the next chapter reading, we will read The Roar Rats. I have no idea. The Roar Rats must be another family. The Roar Rats, Gladness. I love that they're going through San Francisco. And Color Sense, which would be good. Um, when they first n- talked about Geary Street, or no, not Geary, Grant Street, I thought they were talking about Chinatown, but then she mentioned China- Chinatown separately. So she was talking about probably downtown where it's uh, the Embarcadero there um, not the Embarcadero the um, what is that called see I'm not real keen on all the San Francisco districts but down where they usually have the uh, it's a theater district and they have the big park there in the middle 
lots of shopping. Neiman Marcus and Pip Macy's and all that is around. And every Christmas they have ice skating in the park there. And um, I'm sure that must be where she was talking about. I'm going to have to look up on the map to see where the Art Institute is again to see how far away that area is. <laughs> okay, have a good day and I'll talk to you soon.